right. Welcome everyone back to another edition of New Books in Education on the New Books Network. This is Ryan Allen, your host, and I'm excited today to bring you a book uh, that that I personally found from the author who wrote a, a really great paper. And then I went and did a little more uh, research on him, and then I was like, "Oh, he has a book. I want to. I want to talk to this guy." So uh, today I have uh, Robin Shields, senior lecturer uh, in higher education management at University of Bath. And we'll be talking about his book, Globalization and International Education, uh, from Bloomsbury Academic. And this is part of the Contemporary Issues in Education series and came out in 2013. Uh, Robin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me on. Absolutely. Uh, And just if if you want to follow Robin on Twitter, you can check out uh, his uh, handle at uh, at Robin Shields. And if you want to follow myself, it's just at politics and Ed. Uh, just a little quick plug there. Uh, so, Robin, can you maybe uh, tell us uh, how this how this book came together, and maybe a little bit about uh, your academic background? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this book actually is kind of it's not born out of reach of research; it's born out of teaching, which is somewhat unusual among academic books. I started my academic career, I guess, post PhD, working a lot of te- at a lot of teaching intensive universities in the UK, teaching topics uh, that a lot of students found quite interesting, but I didn't have kind of a narrative that pulled those topics together that I could present to them. So this book is kind of my attempt to present a narrative of a lot of topics that interest me, that uh, hold relevance to education students, both those who are going into teaching or other kind of applied professions in education, as well as those who are interested in pursuing more research or perhaps at the start of a, of a research career or a research degree. Fantastic. Yeah. And uh, how about yourself? I mean, how did, how did you get into education in, in general? Or, uh... Oh, good question. It's a long story like <laughs> it is for everyone. I started my teaching career not very far from where you are on West 106th Street in PS 145 wow. as a substitute teacher. Fantastic. So that, that was kind of the uh, beginning of my career as an educationalist, you might say. But uh, after that, I went to volunteer in Nepal for a while. Hmm. I was interested in seeing the world, like a lot of people who get into comparative and international education. So I volunteered there for about a year in a village school. I worked with some NGOs and did some consulting work for UNESCO. So I got kind of interested in international development education and then came back to UCLA and decided to pursue a PhD. And so that's kind of where I ended up, where I am today. All right, great. So we kind of have your background. We kind of have, you know, how this book came together. Uh, let's maybe jump in a little bit. What What is this field, uh, uh, international um, education development? What, what, what are we talking about here? Yeah, the title's quite amorphous. I think you picked up on something good. What does globalization and international education mean? Mm-hmm. It could mean a lot of things to a lot of different people. When some people hear the title, they think of a multicultural classroom, maybe in an international school, lots of students from all around the world talking to one another. Other people think about technology and kids with iPads, maybe connected across the world like you and I are now. But when I teach the topic, I use a picture. And I'll try and give you that picture now as best I can in an audio format. It's a very different picture from those. I, I show a picture from my work in Nepal. And it's a landscape picture of the Himalayas and a village which is set against a backdrop of large white mountains. And so what I talk about with the students is how very little in that picture is different from what it would have been 50 or 100 years ago. 
There are no roads to this village. There's no electricity poles, no phone wires, nothing like that. The houses are all made of rocks, so they're quarried from the local area. And all the agriculture is done the same way it was done 50 or 100 years ago, uh, manually in fields. So this, you could say this picture is kind of frozen in time, but the one thing that's different is there's a white schoolhouse, which you can see very distinctively, and it's actually in the middle of the village. So when I talk about globalization and international education, and what I think a lot of other literature means too, is this story of how education has spread to every corner of the earth, no matter how remote. It might be the one kind of aspect, you might say an institution of Western society that has spread uh, farther than any other. When people talk about globalization, they often think of McDonald's or Starbucks right. and images of McDonald's. There's a book called The McDonaldization of the World or something that talks yeah. about globalization. And, you know, these multinational corporations have expanded rapidly. They've set up branches all around the world, but actually schooling has been a lot more successful than they have mm. in reaching every corner of the earth. So that's the story I'm trying to tell when I talk about globalization and international education. It's how that school came to be in this very remote part of Nepal before any other part of what you might call Western civilization or modernity. Sure, absolutely. Uh, I think just in the previous podcast, we had uh, uh, Dr. David Baker talking about, you know, similar subject from, from maybe a, a different or similar angle as well. So, uh, yeah, absolutely. Interesting connections there. Uh, but how, you know, how did this, because you kind of open up at the, the, the first uh, chapter for us, how does this Western institution, if you will, get spread? Uh, I mean, we kind of start with colonialism and then we, we, we move into... Uh, after World War II, kind of this development mindset, a development turn, if you will. Can you maybe paint us a little picture of, of, of that uh, narrative? Yeah, I think you hit on the real question there when we're talking about globalization, which is why. Mm. Uh, why did it happen? And depending on how you answer that question, why, your view of the entire world in the last two or three hundred years of history could be very different. Sure. It's worth pointing out to a lot of people there is no need to ask why. That's just called progress. That's development. That's just how it is. And it's the natural state of affairs that societies would seek to progress mm. over time. And building a school was part of that. Right. But other people would say, well, uh, you know, there are different reasons. So one reason, I think the reason that David Baker set out is that schooling's an institution. Mm. And the logic behind that institution has become accepted around the world. The normative values are under in schooling, things like democracy, the value of knowledge, these have all become standardized throughout the world, and so people have created institutions in other countries that reflect these same values. Mm -hmm. Another approach would be to say, well, there's a lot of copying, borrowing or mimesis, so that people in Nepal who built this school in the middle of the Himalayas saw what was going on in other countries. They thought that was desirable, and so they built institutions that reflected it. The, so this is kind of copying, or you could even say the invisible hand of competition, mm. uh, driving people towards institutions and practices that are, are increasingly similar. So Nepal wanted to grow its economy. They wanted to improve their standard of living. And so people in this village built the school um, by looking at other places around the world. And then a, a third group would say, well, there's kind of more of an aspect of coercion mm. to it than that. So there was, uh, they might say, when the school was built, 
50 or 100 years ago, or sorry, the school was built about 20 years ago. 50 or 100 years ago, there was no uh, sense of, there was no form of capitalism in Nepal. But capitalism has spread all around the world at more or less the same time that schooling has. And so as capitalism has spread, uh, whether through colonialism or through opening up trade, that's brought with it institutions that prepare societies for capitalism. And uh, schooling is one of those. And there's kind of a whole lineage of critical studies on capitalism and education. I'm thinking of Bowles and Gintis here that talk about how it prepares students for wage labor, how it teaches them to recognize labor time as the basis on which they're rewarded, how it teaches them to recognize central authority. And you, and you might say that that's why schooling spread all around the world. It, it was taking with it, or the capitalist system was taking with it schooling. Mm, absolutely. Uh, and so, yeah, okay. go ahead. Oh, I was just going to ask if, if you're where does uh, aid and donors kind of come into this? And it's always mentioned Truman's sort of speech, I think it was in 52. Yeah. Uh, it was like the birth of this idea. Um, you want to talk about that? The invention of international development, yeah. I mean, Arturo Escobar talks about this very well in his book, Encountering Development, about how social conditions, ways of living, uh, went from being the norm in many countries to being seen as a problem. Uh, and the role that schooling plays in that is is not minor, I think. So, again, if you went back in many countries 50 or 100 years ago, it was the norm that children were not in school. That wasn't seen as a problem. That was seen as the way things are. The majority of children in the world weren't in school. Now we have about 10% of children in this world not in school, and that's seen as a very big problem. There's been a lot of resources uh, invested in trying to change that. So it's an interesting kind of shift in values, I guess, that's happened over the past, since Truman's speech. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting how quickly those values have kind of attained the status of being permanent. Right. If you know what I mean. So this idea of development didn't exist uh, if we were holding this podcast, I don't know when, well, we wouldn't be holding a podcast, but let's say <laughs> in the 20s or 30s, the 1920s or 30s, I don't think it existed in the same way. Sure. It's hard to know. But Truman's speech is a... Uh, kind of a turning point because it solidifies so many of the ideas behind development that science and technology can lead to a better life that uh, there is a duty a universal duty to confer these benefits on the rest of the world right right and uh, I was just going to say I mean this connects I think very nicely to the idea of modernization theory and sort of yeah. these societies that, that you're mentioning maybe there was no school and it was fine but you know that because of we have these theories of modernization we say okay that's bad they have to move to this step and then this step and then finally there'll be something like yeah. this can you maybe talk about that a little bit absolutely I mean early work chapter one in the book does talk about modernization theory quite a bit and some linked uh, theoretical developments such as human capital theory mm-hmm. the work of Jacob Mincer and Gary Becker a lot of people talk about human capital but they don't necessarily trace it back to Mincer and Becker's work which I think the book does pretty well and they're linked to Rostow uh, who developed modernization theory so modernization theory guided international development policy throughout the 60s 70s and probably most of the 80s. Mm-hmm. And the idea was to inject enough capital, enough resources into a country in order for it to undergo a takeoff so that it wouldn't need, wouldn't be aid-dependent anymore and it would be able to achieve what Rostow calls the high age of mass consumption. 
and without any uh, external aid. Now, I think today, looking back, a high age of mass consumption sounds dystopian to me. It sounds like something you wouldn't want to inflict on the rest of the world. But that was seen as the goal, that everyone around the world should have a living standard similar to what people in North America and Western Europe enjoyed. And that was kind of their entitlement as a human being, their right. ultimate destiny, I guess, to roast out. But what an, uh, first of all, it's worth noting that education didn't hold a prominent role in international development policy until the 70s or 80s, I would say. Uh, this is in Chapter 1. I think it was around the 70s that the World Bank made its first loans to education, mm. at least to primary education, when McNamara uh, took over as president. And then it wasn't until late 80s and 90s with the work of Amartya Sen and a real shift in an understanding of what development means uh, that education really became kind of center of a lot of international development policy. Right. And this, that kind of goes into chapter two, talking about uh, this human capabilities model and I guess moving away from what you mentioned, this uh, sort of economics or uh, I guess financial gains from education into more of giving people the abilities, things like that. And I, education for all is connected quite to that. You want to maybe talk about yeah, some of those ideas? Absolutely. So you're right that in a human capital perspective, education is seen as an investment. And the goal is to get in more returns and the value of people's labor that, that you put in in their education. It's mm -hmm. an investment. And you seek a return just like any other investment. In the capabilities perspective, education becomes not a means to development, but an indicator of development itself. It's not the means, it's the end, uh, to Amartya Sen. So Amartya Sen says, you know, lots of countries that have relatively high GDPs don't provide people with lives that they value. They don't have uh, long life expectancies necessarily. They can't necessarily read. They might not have high rates of literacy. So he says if we want to define development, we have to look at an individual's ability to lead a life that they value, which you, you rightly said is their capabilities. Mm -hmm. And so he defines the Human Development Index. And so throughout the 90s, you see a big shift in uh, rhetoric around education, less as an investment and more as a human right and entitlement to everyone. And this is the first time that we put a timetable on uh, when all children should go into school. There have been a lot of articulations. I think chapter two at the end traces this. There have been a lot of documents that had stated that all children should have the right to an education. Mm. Even the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in the mid-20th century said that. But in the 1990s, the donor community, the international community, started to timetable that. And so they put a goal for 2000 and then another goal for 2015, which is just expiring now. Right. And this is where we get... We put the idea of education with other human rights, such as sort of uh, shelter, food, just the very basics, and now yeah. education's in, in, in that list as well. Absolutely. What's really interesting uh, in terms of studying the institution, the school, is that education has always been defined as schooling. Mm. And if you look at a lot of the, might be the Jomtian Declaration or... or the Dakar framework, but it says everyone has a right to an education. The main means of providing an education shall be school. Right. And so we have education for all, but that's actually translated as, as schooling for all. Mm, absolutely. It's, yeah. They don't accept yeah. sort of this non-traditional type of maybe education. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, 
Okay, well, I think that kind of goes nicely into uh, uh, your, your third chapter, and you're really talking about, you know, we talk about all these ideas, what they look like, and a lot of them are sort of Western-led push um, to sort of change these societies. And there was a, a great pushback, even, I think, going back to even the 50s, uh, saying that, no, we, this is not right, or this is just putting, this is just going to create another sort of uh, hierarchy system. Uh, can you yeah. talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. Chapter 3 mentions a great documentary that I'd highly recommend to anyone listening called Schooling the World, mm. which provides a great narrative of how Western education has brought with it um, kind of forms of repression, changes it in the ways of, of living, which are fundamentally unsustainable and how it's presented as a right, but it often involves kind of displacing other ways of life that have existed for a long time. So I think that provides, in a way, a better critique than I have. Um, But you're right that Chapter 3 talks a bit about how international development has also created this discourse of deficiency. Mm -hmm. In order to justify investments in education, international development agencies have portrayed other cultures, other people in ways that emphasizes their what they lack mm. over any other aspect of, of their agency, if you like. Right, right. And I, I definitely uh, uh, enjoy the world systems analysis from uh, Wallerstein. Uh, yeah. Do you want to give us a little bit, maybe briefly, uh, uh, his sort of uh, framework? Yeah, I'll do that. But I'll also say that Tom Griffiths has published a great book, or he published it in 2013, called Mass Education, Global Capital in the World, mm. The Theoretical Lenses of uh, Emmanuel Wallerstein. Oh, wow. So that, that provides a really great, a, a better account than I did, sure. uh, I think, in the book. But Wallerstein, what Wallerstein says is that most of what we understand by the modern world, um, these kind of liberal societies that espouse democracy and human rights can be understood by the expansion of capitalism from Europe in the 17th and 18th centuries and now to encompass the whole world, basically. Right. And right. so he says that capitalist economic production was very different from the feudal systems that preceded it. People were free for the first time. We had the Bill of Rights in the U.S. We had the Declaration of Rights of the Citizen. In France, people were no longer bonded laborers. They had been in feudal times. They could sell their labor wherever they wanted to. Mm. And that sounded great. It was very egalitarian. I'm sure if I lived at that time, I would have much preferred it to what preceded it. Uh, But it, it created competition. And that led to an impetus for growth because when people, when people are in competition, they tend to get into, into price wars that, that can drive the value of their labor down. So they seek to expand outwards. They seek new markets for their labor. And so he said that happened first through colonialism. There was an effort to get both, uh, cheaper raw materials and cheaper labor in other parts of the world. And then more, more lately through globalization through kind of the sourcing of labor to any part of the world that it can be done most cheaply. Right. And so that, that's been a, the role of schooling in that, again, is kind of uh, creating a society that accepts that as a rational, as a meritocratic way of organizing, a way of organizing itself. So schooling has taken with it this liberal culture, a belief in individualism, democracy, etc. Wallerstein doesn't talk a lot about education, but I think uh, Tom Griffiths does. And 
that's a, a great kind of counter-narrative to other other accounts of how schooling has spread throughout the world. Absolutely. I think it's interesting yeah. for any listener. Uh, we'll, we'll make note of that as well. Uh, also in this chapter, you, or through all the chapters, you introduce, like, you have a very uh, succinct uh, organization, you have case studies, you have sort of useful links at the end. Uh, and, and I like this one that you talk about, uh, uh, Saving Asha. Uh, yeah. The, this, you know, I think everybody knows this commercial. They can imagine <laughs> yeah. these things. Uh, so can you kind of talk about that a little bit? Yeah, that commercial plays very heavily in the UK. I, I don't, does it play in the US too? Well, or is we commercials similar, like it, that yeah. commercial in a general sense. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so there's, you know, if you want to give a picture again for listeners, the narrator shows a poor, starving child. Her name's Asha. We don't know where she is, but he says, Asha can't help you, um, or Asha can't speak to you, so we'll speak to you for her. If she could speak to you, she'd ask you to help her. She'd ask you to, to uh, uh, help millions of children like her. We at Save the Children know what it takes to save Asha's life. We can save Asha's life. You need to subscribe today. Right. That, that's kind of a summary of the, the commercial. I mean, it's not unique to Save the Children. I mean, every NGO does commercials like this. Absolutely. Uh, and so the chapter presents a critique of the kind of politics of representation of mm. this type of commercial. Yeah. Absolutely. So it begins by saying that this type of discourse exoticizes development. Mm. If Asha's name were Jennifer or Sally, we probably wouldn't feel the same sense of kind of maybe compassion at her plight. We might not be, it might not seem as appealing to us if she seemed more familiar. Mm. She's also kind of displaced geographically. We assume she's in Africa. Uh, we don't really know, but that's kind of what we're led to believe. We don't know why she's hungry. Mm-hmm. The systemic causes of her hungry, hunger, her, her problems, her sickness are opaque to us. All we know is that uh, Save the Children can help. And lastly, Asha can't speak. That's a kind of interesting thing in all in this commercial. Why can't she speak? Right. And why do we have to have someone else kind of mediate what she wants for us? So this, this critique was inspired by, first of all, Edward Said's Orientalism, and then uh, also the work of Arturo Escobar, mm, who I mentioned already, could do a great job of critiquing the discourse of development. Right, right. I think it, it's yes. a perfect microcosm, sort of, of the West and even just the general public, sort of thinking like, "Oh, development. What does this mean? That's what it means." We're, we're, we have Asha there. We know what we need to do. So, yeah, good, nice example. And everybody, I, I can assure you, knows a, or at least over <laughs> in the United States, uh, in, in, the, in the arms of an angel, like these. these oh, really? Sappy, okay, yeah. Yeah, these very sappy uh, commercials that play. Uh, yeah, I think it's worth noting that some of the discourse employed by development agencies and specifically NGOs uh, shifts. And there's a lot more success stories that you see. Mm. You see them saying, this is Asha, she's learned to read and now she's going to university or something like that. Your investment uh, right. paid off. I think having worked with these organizations a bit, um, I've asked them about this type of thing. Uh, yeah. And one point that they've made is, well, we really believe at the core of our being, what our work is doing is right. And this, our research shows us this is the most effective way of generating revenue. Mm. So we're kind of compelled to do that in order to right. you know, accomplish our, our right. ends, I suppose. Financial means. 
Yeah, yeah. So there are counterpoints to it, you know, counter-arguments, I suppose, to the critique that I present. Sure, absolutely. But it's worth thinking about, because not many people think about the representation that goes on in international development. Absolutely, absolutely. So I think moves nicely into, you know, we're talking about this, this image, uh, but there are places in the world that are actually going through some serious uh, conflicts and sort of chaos. And, you know, it's, it's even yeah. difficult maybe uh, if you're living in sort of a UNHRC, like a refugee camp and things like that. Like, how are we getting, uh, how are they going get, to get education when sort of they're just trying to get these other basic needs like food, water, shelter. Um, yes. How does that even work? Well, that leads that, chap- that leads very well into chapter four, which talks about education in conflicts and emergencies. Absolutely. Which is a topic that has received um, a great deal more attention from researchers and practitioners since about the turn of the century. Uh, your reader, your listeners might be familiar with the INEE, the Interagency Network for Education and Emergencies. That's done a lot of advocacy and research around education in conflict-affected contexts and other emergencies. So th- this is a growing area of research, a growing area of practice. It's also one with a lot of uh, contention and, and debate, uh, I would say. Education has been... The work of the INEE has presented education as the fourth pillar uh, to humanitarian assistance, the others being food, shelter, and, and medical care. Mm-hmm. So that they say education is life-saving in these contexts. We need to focus more of our humanitarian assistance budget onto education. Uh, it's an area of international education that not many people know about. People know a lot more about this kind of modernization or development, the ideas that underpin it are embedded in people's thinking a lot more than humanitarian assistance. Mm-hmm. But it's certainly becoming more prevalent. Uh, one of the critiques I've I picked up to some extent in this book, but also in a more recent paper in comparative education, is that edu- education is always presented as a good thing in terms of uh, in terms of conflict. So if we provide education, that societies will be less likely to enter conflict. But what I pick up a little bit in Chapter 4 in the discussion of two faces is is that education is often uh, not necessarily a good thing. It does promote kind of an egalitarian basis for, well, I shouldn't say education is not a good thing. Uh, Education is practiced in a way or provided in a way that doesn't necessarily lead to good outcomes. Mm. So it provides... On one hand, you know, a form of social inclusion, a form of egalitarianism, and that everybody goes to the same type of schools, more or less. It provides a common platform for national discourse because people uh, understand the same political system. They learn to speak the same language. But it also reproduces a lot of inequalities in society. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so Chapter 2 cites a paper by Bush and Saltarelli, who were two researchers at UNICEF. It was published around the year 2000, which is called The Two Faces of Education and Ethnic Conflict. Mm -hmm. And that looks at how education both uh, can mitigate conflict by providing social inclusion, but also how it can cause conflict, how it, how it can reproduce inequalities that are often at the heart of a violent conflict. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's such a, a you know, difficult aspect of education in general to really say where sort of our financial investment is going to go when there's so many other sort of marks that you might say, well, this is 
potentially more more important. It's, it's, a, it's a difficult situation. Yeah, and I think that's led to debate within the humanitarian assistance community, the extent to which uh, education funding might be rivalrous or, or competing with other forms of assistance that are out there. Yeah. So, yeah, that's been a debate that's been ongoing. Absolutely. So I guess if, if we're just kind of moving along, you, the last sort of half of your book, uh, these other chapters, are all sort of talking about globalization or sort of global connections. Uh, why do you think there's such a large chunk uh, uh, of sort of this idea is so important or ingrained into, uh, into this field? The knowledge economy, globalization and the knowledge economy is another one of those discourses, sets of ideas or assumptions about the world that are uh, kind of commonplace. Mm-hmm. People who don't study education more or less buy into the logic that uh, the world is in kind of a knowledge race. I think David Cameron gave a, a talk of maybe a year or so where he used that word, the great knowledge race, mm-hmm. that all countries are in, in competition with one another and the ability for the country to provide a good life, a good life to people who live there, is largely contingent upon its education system outperforming others around the world. Right. Absolutely. And so that's led to a, a proliferation in international achievement tests and the amount of attention placed on them. So PISA has become a very big deal Right. Uh, the policymakers. It's in the media a lot. Absolutely. I think yeah. almost the, the normal sort of person who doesn't study education could potentially hear PISA and be like, oh, I know kind of what that yeah. is. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. When I tell people about my research interests who are not academics, and you might find the same thing, one of the first things they ask is kind of, so they ask me is, so how are we ranked? How are we doing? Uh, they might not even know PISA or TIMS, right. but they know there's a league table somewhere, a ranking, right. which is supposed to objectively measure how the country's doing in terms of education. Absolutely. Which is, you know, it's interesting, I think, for us as a field talking about, because we, we obviously have a lot of criticisms for these international tests and um, assessments, yet putting our field in the common discourse, I think we would probably say is a good thing. That's true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's a really good aspect to it and that people understand what we're doing. Uh, they probably seek a level of instrumentalism that we can't really provide. Uh, national comparisons. The reason the book's called Globalization, I think, was part of my recognition that international comparisons are not adequate to describe the kind of narrative that I'm trying to provide here. Right. Um, so one of the main things that's interesting about PISA is that it... Um, kind of presents a very neat picture that you can rank countries according to uh, how well they provide education and that will tell you more or less how well students are doing in education. Right. And uh, organizations like the OECD kind of promote that because they want you to think that what they're providing is valid. But if you read into their technical documentation, I've got a document up here which is really interesting. It says, So this is from a a document on the OECD website. Our analysis of the characteristics of achievement scores has highlighted that variance is is much higher within countries than between countries. Mm -hmm. Only about one-tenth of the total variation in student performance lies between countries. Mm -hmm. So actually, countries don't tell us very much about how well students do in in school. It's the irony of of what PISA tells us. There's a lot of other things that are more important how well they are, how well off they are yep. relative to their peers, how much education their parents had. 
these are really what seem to have the strongest correlation to student achievement. But the narrative that comes out of PISA is we have a league table of countries. We have a ranking. Yeah, absolutely. And then, and you kind of talk about this with some of the national initiatives, and I think you mentioned uh, uh, some Obama's initiatives that came out. But yeah, why, that's right. Yeah, why, why, why do governments take this, uh, these rankings and then use them, or how do they even do that? That's a good question. I think it's one that uh, people like Gita steiner Kamsi at Teachers College have, have addressed very well in their writing. Mm-hmm. One of the answers that comes up most frequently is it's used to legitimize what they're already seeking to do. Sure. Uh, PISA provides a kind of limitless, boundless body of evidence that you could use to justify whatever policy you wanted to implement. And exactly, if you look at the top two ranked countries' economies, PISA says countries and economies as, as one mm. entity, the top two are Finland and Shanghai, mm. usually. Uh, and so you could use those two examples to justify pretty much any <laughs> intervention that you wanted to undertake as a policymaker. Absolutely. I don't know if they're that intentional and strategic about it, but I think that's why one of the reasons it's so appealing to them. Absolutely. It's become very useful if you want to say, well, now we need more centralized government testing, things like that. Look, that's what is going on in Shanghai or Korea, things like yeah. that. Yeah. Absolutely. So you've got your. If you want less testing, you look to Finland. It it, it cuts both ways. Right. So it's very useful. Absolutely. Uh, I had an MP in my class about a month ago who said that a member of Parliament, that is, in the UK, who said that um, possibly he was more sympathetic, and he said they just don't have. They have to provide an evidence base for what they're doing. Yeah, I mean, and I so. If you're sitting in their shoes, if we were sitting in their shoes, we might say, well, it's the accepted standard. You know, it's it's the currency of education systems, if you like. And even though it's really problematic, that's the agreed benchmark, so we're going to use it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this isn't just with testing. We're, we're seeing this across the board with with all sorts of other sort of rankings. I mean, university rankings yeah. uh, are, are also becoming sort of very popular, and you talk about that as well. Um <laughs> How about, uh, I guess, sort of going to another angle and talk about this uh, information communication technology. I think you specifically cite, I can't remember who talks about, this is actually provided a way or at least a a policy uh, measure that says, okay, well, we can skip sort of steps and and things like that. Can you kind of talk about that idea a little bit? That's a good point because it uh, it contrasts with, Rostow's modernization theory that we mm-hmm. talked about earlier, where you had a kind of a slow process of takeoff, where you had some first agriculture, then basic industry, and then you had a drive towards having complex industry where you made things like spaceships and VCRs or whatever it is right. that uh, people learned to make. Um, but yeah, when ICT for development entered uh, the development discourse in the years following 2000, for the most part, the idea was you didn't need to do all these things. You didn't need to have factories. You could just go straight to having very highly skilled workers who could sell their knowledge work uh, all around the world. Mm-hmm. And you had examples like India's software industry. Right. We had a country that was otherwise in you know fairly low in terms of human development, had a lot of poverty, but was selling labor at very high premiums because it had invested a lot 
in its higher education system in you know a long time ago in the 60s and 70s and now it was yielding the fruits of that in terms of having very highly skilled workers right. so ICT for development one of the uh, key tenets is it, they called it leapfrogging development yeah, right so right. you could you could leapfrog over having sweatshops and and export-oriented industry and just go straight to the high premium knowledge workers, which is what every country kind of wanted. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess kind of we're, we're wrapping up a little bit, but I want there's one more thing that I wanted to, to mention that I thought uh, was maybe more important to the conversation than, than a lot of people realize. Um, we, call it, we call it GATS, or General Agreement on Trade and Services. Yes. And, uh, they're, they're putting sort of education in the service sector, saying that, yeah, this is just another sort of service like tourism, healthcare, things like that. Can you maybe talk about the impacts of that? Absolutely. I mean, I think the real key work in this uh, field has been done by Susan Robertson, uh, Roger Dale, and Xavier Bonal, who did a paper, it must have been about early 2000s, mm -hmm. that was the first critical study of GATS, which right. I really recommend. And then Christopher Collins' paper in 2007 is really good too. But you're right, GATS is very unusual in that it specifies education, at least higher education, as a commodity which is un just like any other. Mm -hmm. It's subject to the same rules of free trade as uh, software consultancy, any other type of knowledge service that you could provide. It's been... Uh, controversial in many countries. Not so much uh, those in the global north, you might say, high-income countries, but much more in uh, South America, for, in for instance, where it's been seen to open the door for uh, North American and European institutions to set up campuses, which will often be for-profit and yeah. That's aimed good. at subsidizing the home camp, if not for profit explicitly, at least aimed at extracting some extra revenue to subsidize uh, campuses in the UK. Right. It's interesting that it's higher education, which has been opened up. Uh, for some reason, higher education is more amenable to this type of uh, international openness than primary and secondary, which are seen as very protected areas of the national government. Yeah. You see that in Europe, where we've had the Bologna process, which has opened all European higher education to a common system, a common currency, if you like, of uh, credit transfer. Mobility between universities is supposed to be much easier. But primary and secondary education are not touched upon by mm. European policy, which right. is interesting, because that's kind of the sacred cow of, of individual nation states. That, that's not legitimate territory for the European government. So how that changes in the future will be interesting to see. Absolutely. I think we're actually seeing an erosion of that, maybe led by uh, sort of the, the uh, free and, and choice movement in the United States and yeah. easily spreading... Uh, I mean, you know how neoliberalism sort of easily spreads these things uh, yeah. across the world. So I'm wondering if the future is primary and secondary education, especially the for-profits in, in some of these other countries. The IB, the International Baccalaureate, is yeah. an interesting space to watch in that respect because that's the only system of education that really purports a global basis, if yeah. you like, to be globally applicable. And that has grown a lot uh, in recent years. There's a lot of people at University of Bath who do research on it. Yeah. And it's an it's also often an avenue for privatization. Yeah. So private schools tend to be 
IB schools. They tend to go together. Uh, it has entered the state education system to some extent. There is an experiment with that here, although it's, it's kind of tapered off a bit, providing the IB to state schools kids. So it may be that initiatives, either the IB or initiatives like the IB provide more of kind of a global integration of mm-hmm. primary and secondary Absolutely. Yeah, we're, we're seeing that in the United States in public schools that are sort of trying to have a, an aurora of um, private school-like yeah. situations. So, um, yeah, Intra- that's really here. The state schools, the, the public schools have started taking out ads mm. in the same way the private schools do. Yeah, so the, I think it's just, yeah, that's, that might be a future research uh, area. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, so we're kind of to, to the end of the book, and we had a nice overview, but what is the big takeaway that you want uh, listeners or, or future readers to, to take away from the book? Well, the story, the story, if there's a story to this book, is about how education and schooling went from being a culturally specific institution in a few countries in Western Europe mm-hmm. to being a universal one that's supposed to be relevant to uh, all parts of the world. Right. And that there's a set of values that underpin that, there's also an economic basis that underpins that. In uh, ultimate, in answer to your first question, which is kind of the ultimate why, I don't actually have an answer. Mm-hmm. I think this question is like the ultimate face and two faces. If you know the picture of, that you can oh, see right. there's two faces facing one another or uh, as a vase, you, right. you can see it both ways. And, sure. and there's a lot of evidence both ways. So I don't have an answer to why. But... The main thing to take away then is that it hasn't always been this way, and it might not always be that way in the future. And we're now at a critical juncture. I mean, this is 2015. So I said earlier, this is the year the goal for universal primary education Mm -hmm. expires. And it's actually the second time the goal has expired without it being reached. So we're at a point now where we consider, we have to reconsider what does it mean to be developed? What does it mean to... uh, what should be the goal of education? 2015 is an interesting year, too, for me. One of my favorite uh, movies when I was younger was Back to the Future 2. <laughs> and if you know that movie, the main, Marty McFly, the main character, travels to the future, and it's a great place. And he has a hoverboard, which is just what I wanted. He has a flying car. And so uh, it kind of embodied Truman's vision that science and technology will provide a better life for us all. Right. The irony is that the future that Marty McFly traveled to is now. Right. It's this year, and we don't have those things. So not not that those are necessarily should be the goals of development, but we're at a stage where we kind of need to consider what does progress mean. Right. Uh, Right. Is science and technology going to lead to a better and better life? Uh, Are there limits to that? Issues like climate change are a lot more important now than they were certainly when education for all began. Definitely when Truman was was speaking, that wasn't even a blip on the radar. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Well, uh, I I definitely think that the the readers will enjoy this book and it's it's, it's precise and sort of, I think, an an easier read than than maybe if you just look at the cover and and, uh, read the title. Um, So I do thank you for that. But sort of the final question that we always have on the New Books Networks. Uh, why don't you uh, let me know what's what's going on? What, what do you got? Uh, future research or another book project? Or what do you have in the, in the pipe? Yeah, that's a good question. I think 
a lot of what I'm working on now goes to this issue of globalization and trying to get beyond the nation state as a way to understand education. Mm. There's kind of a paradox in international and comparative research, you could say, or research on globalization and education, and that we're trying to understand education in a way that acknowledges nation states aren't the only relevant boundaries. Mm. And that in some senses, somebody who's from a well-off family in India has a social experience, an educational experience, which is much more similar to someone who's from a well-off family in the UK or the US, than, and that's a lot more similar than someone else in India who's much less well-off than they are. Mm. So the relevant boundaries, the fault lines, aren't between nation-states anymore. So for me, the challenge is looking for new forms of data and new ways of understanding education that go beyond the nation-state. Wow. And that's, that's pretty difficult. Uh, there's an irony in that that shows you the nation-state's really important. Why is all the data that we have gathered at the national level right. is because nation-states nation do matter. Right. So people who say the nation-states are relevant. Arjuna Padurai said in Modernity at Large, the nation-states on its last legs. Mm. That doesn't seem to be the case. Right. Uh, and I don't know if that will be the case anytime in the near future. But to get right to the chase, I'm looking for new, new types of data that uh, are non-national. The IB is one source oh, of data. Yeah, right, right, absolutely. Uh, PISA and TIMS are another, actually, ironically enough, if you, if you take out the national level, or if you minimize how you look at that, they provide a very rich uh, form of data for students all around the world. So. Okay. Well, that's great. I mean, that's I think that's like sort of cutting edge in, in, in the field and trying to move away from the nation state, which has been basically dominant for since the beginning, I guess, maybe. Uh, all right. Well, uh, I just want all our listeners to go check out globalization and international education uh, from Dr. Robin Shields. And I do uh, thank Dr. Shields for being on the, on the show today. And we'll provide a link, uh, of course, to the book. So go check that out. And uh, Dr. Shields, thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me, Ryan. All right. And uh, to everyone out there, I hope you learned something. Thank you.